0: Let me welcome all those of you who are gathered with us to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning. Welcome. I invite you to turn in God's Word to 1 Kings, chapter 18, verses 1 through 40. 1 Kings 18, 1 through 40, a well-known passage of Scripture, a dramatic passage of Scripture, where we see the great conflict between the false god Baal and the true god Yahweh, or the Lord. So 1 Kings 18.1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, He is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord for my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets, by fifties in a cave, and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and, gather, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the four, 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And Elijah said to the people, "'I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, "'but Baal's prophets are 450 men. "'Let two bulls be given us. "'Let them choose one bull for themselves "'and cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, "'but put no fire to it. "'And I will prepare the other bull "'and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. "'And you call upon the name of your God, "'and I will call upon the name of the Lord. "'And the God who answers by fire, he is God.' "'And all the people answered, "'It is well spoken.' Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, "Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it." And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, "O Baal, answer us!" But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, "Cry loud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened." And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we confess on the basis of your testimony in scripture that you alone are God and there is no other. You alone can save and you alone can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. Lord, so much of our wretchedness is the result of worshiping other gods alongside of you, money, pleasure. Heavenly Father, we pray that if this morning there are rivals for our heart's affections if we are worshiping something alongside of you or instead of you we pray that you would convict us by your word and spirit and bring us to repentance turning our hearts back to you lord there is life only in you we pray lord that we would more firmly believe that you alone satisfy and you alone protect and that our worship would be more ardent for that reason father you know the needs of every person here we pray that your word would speak to each and every person, uh, bringing conviction where needed, bringing bringing comfort and encouragement where needed. Father, speak to us this morning, we ask. Amen. G.K. Chesterton, in his book, Orthodoxy, makes the observation that the essence of choice is limitation. If you choose to live in Rome, well, You've said goodbye to Paris. You say yes to one thing, you say no to another. You can enjoy all the delights of Rome, but not also the delights of Paris. You must choose. And that principle holds true when it comes to the objects of our worship. Worship the Lord and we can't worship other gods. Worship another God and you can't worship the Lord. You must choose. Or as our passage says, the language of our passage is, stop limping between opinions. Stop fence-sitting Choose whom you will worship. Who is the Lord? Worship Him. Our passage calls us not only to choose and commit ourselves to the Lord, but it shows us why we ought to worship the Lord alone and give our hearts to the Lord alone. It's because He alone is God, and there is no one like Him. All of the Baals, all of the false gods of the world, are nothing and less than nothing. As we look at our passage today, It's a really rich passage. So much to say, so much that we can't say. But as I always try to do, I'll I'll try to say as much as I can. (laughs) Pack it in there. Uh, Which is why there are five points this morning. Uh, Yeah. Um, Number one, Obadiah's dilemma. Obadiah's dilemma. Number number two, Ahab's accusation. Ahab's accusation. Three, weakness in numbers four, the impotence of idols, five, and this is the climactic theme, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. <clears throat> we saw in the last chapter there's a severe drought that's gone on, gone on now for nearly three years, and the drought is the result of the Lord's judgment upon Israel and her idolatry, and specifically the house of Ahab, who has turned to worship Baal, turned from the Lord to worship Baal. So the drought is severe. Nearly three years have gone by. There's famine. It's a time of difficulty. And that's underscored at the beginning of chapter 18, where the king says to the manager of his household, Obadiah, Let's scour the land. Maybe we'll find a bit of grass and feed some of the animals to keep them from dying. Existence or life has become a matter of mere existence. And we're introduced to this character, Obadiah. He's an intriguing figure, isn't he? He fears Yahweh. So he's loyal to the Lord at a time when the nation is worshiping Baal. He's loyal to the Lord, but he's also the manager of Ahab's household. These great contradictions, one of these uh, unexpected twists. Loyal to the Lord, but also a high-ranking official in Ahab's court. And at a time when uh, the Baal worshiping Jezebel, the queen, Ahab's wife, sets out to kill many of the prophets of the Lord. He hides 100 prophets in caves and feeds them with water and bread. Even in dark times of apostasy and national rebellion, the Lord knows how to keep a people for himself and keep them fed even uh, in the caves. So this is Obadiah. Ahab and Obadiah go looking for grass. And as Obadiah scours the land, he is confronted by Elijah and he recognizes him. Is it you, my lord Elijah? It is I. Go tell Ahab that it's time for us to meet. It's time for the rain to come back to the land, but not before there's a power conflict between uh, Baal and the Lord. It needs to be clear to all of Israel that the rain doesn't return because of the storm god Baal. It returns because Yahweh has turned on the faucet of heaven. So get, go uh, Obadiah, find Ahab and bring him to me. We need to talk. What's Obadiah's response? Amen. <laughs> Thus says the Lord, I, I'll do what you say, prophet of the Lord. No, he goes on for several verses about how this is going to result in his death. He says, you, you, Ahab, Ahab has been uh, searching for you everywhere. There has been an international manhunt for you. Uh, and he has made nation after nation pledge that you're not in their midst. He's been, he's been looking everywhere for you, and he, and he has not succeeded because the Lord has, hid, has hidden you so well. So if I go tell him that you're here and the Lord hides you as he's, he's done all of these years, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to die. And don't you know that I'm loyal to the Lord? Don't you know that I'm faithful? Do you, do you not know about the hundred prophets that I saved? Uh, he protests, at least this is my sense, a bit too much just a bit. right? He, he pleads with Elijah that this will result in his death. And so I think that this perhaps excessive fear is a, is a real defect in Obadiah, his risky protection of the prophets notwithstanding. But Elijah assures him, they're there. I'll stay right here. And so he goes to Ahab. But consider Obadiah. He is a, a representative, if you like, Of those individuals who find themselves caught between the competing claims of the Lord, Yahweh, and secular human lords. They live in that place of tension between serving the Lord and meeting their responsibilities in a society that violently opposes the Lord. And we see this tension even in the way Elijah is introduced. He says, I'm sorry, uh, Obadiah is introduced. He says to Elijah, Is it you? My Lord Elijah, verse 7, and note how Elijah responds. Go tell your Lord, right? He's got two Lords. Is that you, my Lord Elijah? Yeah, go tell your Lord. He, he's, he's caught between the Lord, Yahweh, and between uh, his Lord, Ahab. We see the tension even in the way he takes care of the prophets. On the one hand, he's got a responsibility to Ahab to manage the household, which he does, he also has a responsibility to the Lord to protect his servants, which he does. He lives in this place of tension between competing demands from different lords. Of course, his fundamental loyalty is to Yahweh. And this is a place where God's people in many generations have to live, this morally murky terrain where we want to serve the Lord in a world that violently opposes him. We want to serve him And somehow navigate the moral ambiguities of life in a fallen world. Uh, My grandmother, on my dad's side, uh, managed a grocery store in communist Romania. And she told me that it was so difficult to try to be a woman of integrity and honesty in an environment of double standards and corruption. She told me about the moral anguish of trying to navigate, like, I want to be faithful to God and be honest there's all this corruption that's happening, and, and how hard it was to live in that tension. She told me about the relief of being able to finally retire from that job and, and extricate herself from, those, from that moral ambiguity. And Some of you know that tension. Uh, maybe you work for companies, or you work in a school uh, that's you know, really celebrating all things LGBTQ+. The woke revolution has made significant inroads in your place of work. And so you're seeking to be faithful to the Lord on the one hand, and on the other, be a good employee in an environment that celebrates uh, an anti-God conception of human sexuality and gender. God's people have often lived in this tension between being faithful to the Lord and having competing claims from uh, another Lord in the workplace, perhaps. Perhaps So uh, Obadiah, though, I think is an encouragement to us. Uh, first of all, I think he's an encouragement to us because uh, there he is, meaning we're not the first to face this, right? Uh, living in a topsy-turvy society where up is down is down is, uh, is up. Uh, this has happened before, and it will happen uh, in the future unless the Lord Jesus comes back. And this is a tension that God's people have lived in in many eras. There's something comforting about knowing you're not in a unique position, Uh, This is a position that God's people have found themselves in before, and by the wisdom and grace that God provides, we can be faithful just as they were faithful in the past. So understand that living in a topsy-turvy world is not a new situation. I think that's the first source of consolation. More, More significantly still, though, look at the way that Obadiah's position enables him to advance the kingdom and advance the work of God. It's precisely because he lives in this place of tension, he lives at this intersection of God's claims and the intersection and uh, in the uh, claims of Ahab, that he's able to do some real good for the kingdom, right? Because he lives at this unco- in this uncomfortable place, he is able to protect the prophets of the Lord. And so his, his situation, difficult though it is, is also an opportunity for God's work to advance, understand that you are not in the times that you're in randomly. It's not an arbitrary fact that you, know, you, were, you, you had the misfortune of being born in the wrong century. And so you have to deal with things perhaps other people didn't have to deal with. That's not the picture at all. God has put you for such, in this place for such a time as this. These times that try our souls are ordained by God himself, and you are put here for a purpose, and even in the midst of these difficult times, these tense-filled times, God intends to use you to advance his purposes and his kingdom. It's not an arbitrary fact that you're right here right now facing these challenges. The Lord has placed you here and he has placed you here not for you to cower with fear, but for you to look around in faith and courageously seize the opportunities that are in front of you for his glory and the good of your fellow man. God doesn't put you in these tense situations, these conflicted situations. Uh, arbitrarily there's a purpose he's using you one way or another to advance his purposes uh, that should help us to avoid chronological envy if only, if only i'd lived in a simpler time hey it's not clear there were simpler times world's always been a mess uh, but two god has placed you right here right now he has he has you exactly where he wants you for the sake of advancing his purposes in the world do you believe that And if you believe that, you're going to look to him to give you the resources, the wisdom and strength that you need to be faithful in these conflicted, tense-filled moments. So God uses these situations to advance his purposes. And I would add, he also uses these situations, the times that try our souls, to make us like Jesus. You can't be a person of wisdom and strength and maturity and deep love and steadfastness without, without going through it. It's only by navigating these morally ambiguous situations and persevering in faith that you can become a person of substance. Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, including these times. So we become more like Jesus as we trust in him and seek to faithfully fulfill our responsibilities in a world that opposes God. So Obadiah then is a representative of all those who live at the crossroads between serving God and a world that opposes him. So Obadiah goes to his other lord, Ahab, and says, Come, Elijah's here. And there is now, after many years, a confrontation between Elijah and Ahab. And what we notice is Ahab's cheek, his audacity. Verse 17, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Imagine, right? Uh, Ahab has brought Israel to a a spiritual low point that is unprecedented. We're told that in the previous uh, two chapters. Israel has never been worse, spiritually speaking. Jezebel has chased out the prophets of the Lord. Baal worship is acceptable. Ahab has presided over this national apostasy. Israel is is in the miserable state that she's in because of Ahab, And here is an instance of the guilty pointing his finger at the innocent and saying, you've done it. On one level, this shows us the way that uh, sinners characteristically evade responsibility and point the finger at someone else. At another level, I think this well exemplifies what the world often does well, and that is point the finger at the church and say, it's your fault, you did it. Now, sometimes... It can be justified. And the church is not beyond saying we sin individually and corporately, and when we are wrong and we violated the law of God, we want to take ownership of that, confess our sin, ask for forgiveness, and make amends where appropriate. We're not above taking responsibility for our actions. Indeed, the Word of God encourages us to do that. But there are many instances where the world illegitimately points its fingers. You, Christians, are responsible for the mess that we're in, and that claim is simply false. We see it uh, in Tertullian's day. Tertullian was a 2nd, 3rd century church father, and he writes in his apology, "...they take the Christians to be the cause of every disaster to the state, of every misfortune to the people." If the Tiber reaches the walls, if the Nile does not rise to the fields, if the sky doesn't move or the earth does, if there is famine, if there is plague, they cry at once, the Christians to the lion. It's it's the Ahabs of the world pointing to the church, pointing to God's people and saying, you did this and not taking responsibility. We need to be careful about being bullied and manipulated into uh, taking responsibility for sins we did not commit. And that is, I think, a real temptation at the moment. Especially if you're a, a, you've got a sensitive conscience and you want to take seriously the accusations that are made and you want to live a holy life before God. It is easy to be, to be manipulated into taking responsibility for guilt you, you actually don't have. Uh, especially as, as you know, the woke ideology has made inroads and in progress in society. And guilt is not simply the result of wrong things that you do. Guilt is the result of your social position, and you've got to repent simply for being a, a, in a certain part of society. You should feel guilt, and you should uh, feel bad about yourself, and you should do everything that you can to repent. Well, that's, that's not biblical. The law of God determines good and evil, right and wrong. The law of God determines what is sin. If you've not violated the law of God, you've not sinned, regardless of what the tenets of wokeism say. So when the world points its finger at the church, we need to be open to correction. We also need to be wise as serpents, as well as innocent as doves, and not be uh, manipulated into false guilt. Peter Lightheart, in his commentary, makes I think a very shrewd observation. He says, accusing the righteous is a favorite ploy of Satan, whose name means accuser. Elijah is not intimidated by the accusation, nor does he respond with pseudo-humble, You've got a point there, Ahab. We're both partly to blame. He simply turns the charge back and refuses to consider Ahab's accusation. Of course, everyone sins, and Christians must be quick to hear a rebuke when it comes. But often what comes disguised as an angelic rebuke is really a satanic accusation designed to render us impotent by dissolving energy in guilt. This is a shrewd observation. (laughs) Satan undermines our effectiveness by filling us with false guilt and we should be wary of that the proper response to the Ahabs of the world is I've not troubled Israel but you have you've broken the commands of the Lord you've been unfaithful you've brought misery upon the land okay says Elijah to Ahab here's what we do Go get the 450 prophets of Baal who eat at Jezebel's table. Bring them to Mount Carmel, which may have been the place where Baal was uniquely worshipped. Bring them to Mount uh, Carmel. Uh, Baal might have home court advantage in the scenario that's about to unfold. Uh, And Ahab seems to be willing to do this because he thinks, you know, 450 to 1. Surely Baal will prevail. Uh, So Ahab goes and he summons his prophets. And they come together to Mount Carmel. Israel herself comes there's a a multitude of onlookers and spectators what will transpire Elijah the prophet of the Lord says to the people of God the time of limping between opinions is over the time of fence sitting is over now you need to choose can't have it both ways if Baal is God worship him if the Lord is God worship him but we are not going to live in this place of of divided loyalties any longer the Lord will not be worshiped alongside some other deity. The Lord makes absolute claims on his people. So a contest is set up. There will be two bulls provided. That bull will, will be sliced up into pieces and put on wood, put on an altar. And if uh, Baal answers the prayers of his prophets, well, you know, worship Baal. But if Yahweh answers the, my prayer and fire comes down from the Lord, then the Lord is God and you will serve one or the other. And as this, as the rules of this, of this uh, conflict between Baal and Yahweh are spelled out, there's a uh, conspicuous emphasis on the discrepancy in numbers, isn't there? Go get the 450 prophets of Baal, says the one prophet of the Lord. Uh, verse 22, Elijah says, I... Even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Verse 25, Elijah turns to the Baal prophets and he says to them, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for, for you are many. Baal has a numerical advantage over the Lord. There are more uh, prophets of Baal than there are prophets of the Lord. There's only one prophet of the Lord, 450 prophets of Baal. Who, who wins and who loses? Well, the the crowd, the multitude, the numerically superior Baalites end up being defeated by one man of God, which teaches us to be less impressed than we frequently are by numbers. We think that there is strength in numbers. Well, this episode shows us there can be weakness in numbers. The question is not really how many are on our side, but rather on whose side is the Lord? And if Yahweh is with you, then it doesn't matter if there are a whole host of Baal worshipers. The Lord will prevail. Jonathan in 1 Samuel says to his armor bearers, Hey, let's go attack the Philistines, just the two of us. Garrison of Philistines. And here's his rationale, 1 Samuel fourteen six. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Numerical inferiority is not a liability for the Lord. In fact, it enables him to display his power. Let's go, just the two of us. What's to stop the Lord from saving by two, by few or by many? What about Gideon? In Gideon's day, uh, when the armies of Israel went out to fight against their foes, the Lord specifically dwindled down the number of warriors before they went into battle, so it would be clear that he's the one who gives victory to Israel. Whether by few or many, that's not a liability for the Lord. That should encourage us when we perhaps hear dire statistics of um, the number of Christians in the, in the nation or in society dwindling. That's something we should obviously pay attention to, be concerned about. We want people to know Jesus as their Savior. But we shouldn't fret either. Be filled with anxiety because we know that whether there are many or few, the Lord is able to protect his people. He's our rock, and he's not intimidate, intimidated by the numer- numerical superiority of idolaters, Conversely, we should not be overly impressed by numbers either. If the Lord is pleased to cause the church to grow, our local church, the church generally. We should never put our confidence in that. It's the Lord who is our rock and deliverer. So as we know, their numerical superiority doesn't help them very much in the contest that ensues. Now, the, the prophets of Baal don't fail through lack of effort. Did you note the intense and strenuous effort uh, that they exhibit in attempting to get Baal to do what they want? Uh, First of all, notice just the sheer amount of time from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us. Baal, answer us. And then they they begin to speak more loudly. Oh, Baal, answer us. And then they begin to cut themselves and impale themselves and blood begins to flow. There's no want of trying, right? Right? They are strenuously applying themselves to the task of getting Baal to do what they want. But notice, very very anticlimactically, uh, we're told, verse 29, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Blood is flowing, they're screaming, but there was no voice. No one answered, no one paid attention. I think the narrator is gently poking fun at these prophets of Baal Um, Elijah's doing so more aggressively and directly, he says right around noon, hey, he could be relieving himself on the toilet, you know, just be patient, keep asking, he's sleeping, maybe you need to wake him, maybe he's on a trip, maybe you need to call him back, incidentally that's not far-fetched in some of the mythology that that, uh, revolved around Baal, we know that sometimes he wasn't home, one of the other gods could show up and Baal was hunting and you couldn't find him, So, like, not that far-fetched. That's the kind of capricious and unreliable deity that Baal was. And the point is straightforward. If if you worship an idol, you are a fool. And the joke's on us, incidentally, if we worship a false god, as we'll see. Uh, But the ridicule is meant to underscore the utter impotence of gods other than the Lord to rescue and bless and deliver and impart life. There was no voice. It is utter folly To trust in any other God but the Lord. The emphasis here is on the utter inability of false gods to do anything for their worshipers. We live in a society with lots of religious options, and the enlightened point of view is the one that says all religious options basically say the same thing, they lead you to the same place. All gods are equal. And our text is saying just the reverse of that. There is only one God who can save us and deliver us. And put your trust in any other God and they will fail you. What happens to the prophets of Baal at the end of this account? They're slaughtered. That's where idolatry takes you, death and judgment. But the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, sustainer of all things, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, knows how to rescue his people and impart life. You're a fool to trust in anyone or anything other than the Lord. It's also important to recognize that there aren't just religious idols. Uh, We can make an idol out of almost anything. Take any good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing, and it becomes an idol. Take any good thing, money, relationship, pleasure, work, power, and make that the focal point of your life, and that is your functional God, regardless of what you might say with your lips. like Your creed might be impeccable, but if your heart says, no, this is the thing that I live for and love. And that thing is not the Lord. That is your functional God. That is your idol. Scripture speaks of the Babylonians who made their might or military strength their God. Habakkuk one eleven, Guilty men whose own might is their God. The thing that you look to to keep you safe from the storms of life, that's your God. The thing in which you place your deepest confidence to keep you safe, whatever that thing is, that thing is your God. Again, Habakkuk one sixteen. He sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury. This is the thing that provides for me, so I worship it. And of course, very frequently, money is the thing that we look to to keep us fundamentally safe. We place our hope in it. Job 31, 24 and 28. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, I would have been false to God above. In our world, money is the thing that people frequently look to, to guard them from the uncertainties of life and the storms of life. Consider what this text is saying even about money. It will fail you. Just as Baal didn't answer the prayers of his prophets, money won't answer the deepest longings and hopes of your heart. Inflation will devalue it. It will sprout wings and fly away and there will be none left. Or even if it remains, even if your wealth is there for you, it can't heal your terminal illness. It can't deliver you from death and judgment. It can't deliver you from old age and loneliness. Your false god will fail you in the hour of your greatest need. Money, the thing that you think will make life so sweet and protect you, from the uncertainties of life, it will fail you. Preach that to yourself when you find your heart going, if I could just have a little more. It can't do for you, Baal can't do for you, what you think it can do for you. The thing you look to as your ultimate source of protection, that's your functional God. Or the thing that you look to for your deepest satisfaction, that is also an indication of what your functional God is. What do you look to and say? If I had that man, life would be so sweet. If I had that, everything would be perfect. People frequently look to romantic relationships to be that for them. If I can have this person in my life, man, everything would be amazing. But what happens when we take a mere mortal, a mere human being, and we put him on the pedestal that belongs to God? What happens? We find ourselves constantly being hurt, that they're not giving us the attention that we had hoped. They're constantly, their thoughtlessness is constantly letting us down, and they find us to be increasingly needy and clingy as we obsessively try to squeeze more life out of them than they could ever possibly give. Take a human being and substitute them for God, and that relationship becomes grotesque and weird and obsessive and clingy very quickly. Romantic love when it replaces God, or any kind of relationship for that matter, uh, will ultimately fail you. It won't provide the paradise that you think it will provide. That's the great theme of this passage. Baal can't help you. Anything that you look to other than the Lord to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart won't. It will fail. It will destroy you. So what is that God substitute for you? As you look at your heart, what is the thing about which you say, if I just had that, mm, if I just had that, life would be very good indeed. Whenever we see our hearts moving in that direction, what we need to tell ourselves is, this feeling that I have, that this thing will fill me with joy and delight and satisfaction or will protect me, this is an illusion. Remember the prophets of Baal? Remember how Baal didn't show up and they were ultimately cut down? That's the path that I'm on in in replacing the living God with this, whatever this is. And one indication that something is in fact an idol is it frequently leads to fighting with other people when they get in in between you and that thing. James chapter 4 verse 2 says, you covet and cannot, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. One sign that you're holding too tightly, even idolatrously, onto something is when someone gets between you and that thing, you're filled with intense anger and you quarrel and you fight. So if you love football more than you should and your kid walks in front of the screen, do you say, please step aside so we can watch the game remain calm and composed because football is not your God? It, or do you ex- get out of the way? Right? Don't, don't overlook the significance of those outbursts. That anger is saying something about your heart, is saying something about what you really love. So what kinds of, uh, what kinds of things prompt that, kinds of an- that kind of anger and quarreling? If you have a, a day off and your spouse suddenly says, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you that afternoon that you were going to use to do whatever actually you can't because i've i've done this i've scheduled this instead how do you respond okay you know let's plan better next time or do you is there anger false gods can't save you and the thing about idols is you can't just remove them you have to replace them it's not enough to say i'm going to stop worshipping this god you've got to worship something you've got to look to something to provide protection Something has to satisfy your heart. So it's not enough to simply say, I'll stop with this false God. Uh, false gods ha- can't just be removed, they have to be replaced, and they have to be replaced by the living God. And that's where our passage climaxes. Having failed very conspicuously to bring down Baal's fire, Elijah says to the people, Come here. He puts the bull, the pieces of the bull, on the altar, rebuilds the altar, it's been destroyed. He digs a trench around the altar and says, pour water. Pour pour water on the bull. Do it three times. Four jars. It's no limitation to God's power. And then instead of, notice the contrast in, in the way Elijah approaches the Lord. There aren't any theatrics here. Nobody's cutting themselves and shrieking for hours. Elijah soberly and confidently comes to the Lord. Because the difference between paganism and true religion is this. Pagans put their confidence in technique. Their gods can be manipulated through strenuous rituals and cutting yourself. But God's people put their confidence in the character of the Lord, not in technique, not in what they do to manipulate their gods into compliance. So Elijah comes to the Lord and says, Lord, show these people that you are the Lord. And fire comes down with such intensity and force that everything is burnt. Even that water is licked uh, dry. Everything is consumed the climax of the passage, verse 39, is uh, when the people say, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. There is no other God that can compare to the one true and living God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He alone can save His people, and He alone can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. Do you notice that it is the prophets of Baal who bleed for Baal? They cut themselves and the blood flows freely. In false religion, you bleed for your God. But in Christianity, it's God who bleeds for you. Acts 20 verse 28 says, The church of God, Paul's speaking of the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The one true and living God is the one who comes down. The Son of God comes down to us. And he doesn't call us to bleed for him. He bleeds for us. He takes upon himself the curse of our sin, the guilt of our sin, and he suffers the anguish that we deserve so that through his, the shedding of his blood, through his death, we might be pardoned and reconciled to God. The one true and living God comes and suffers for his people that they might draw near to him. If you want protection in life, look to Jesus. Jesus. If he gave his life for you, and if the father gave his son for you, how will he not also provide everything that you need to make it safely through this life into your eternal home in his presence? You're never safer than when you're in the hands of Jesus Christ. And you see that by looking at the cross. If God did that for me when I was his enemy, how will he not also sustain me to the end? We look for protection in this uncertain world, and that's fine. Just look for protection in God. He will not forsake his people. He will be their refuge and their strength. And of course, God alone is the one who satisfies our hearts more deeply, most deeply. We, to be a human being, to be made in the image of God, is to be a pleasure seeker. We can't help ourselves. We want pleasure. We want joy. We want happiness. And that is fine. It's just a question of where are you pursuing your deepest satisfaction and joy? And the testimony of scripture is that you won't find joy in anything other than God himself. But God himself does indeed satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. Psalm 4, verse 7. I love this verse. It says, You have put more joy in my heart. Psalmist is speaking to God. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. I have more joy in God then even when they have their great feasts and good food and abundant wine, God gives me more joy than all of the celebrations of the world. God doesn't just protect us. In fellowship with him, in knowing his love for us, we experience profound inner satisfaction and delight. What is a John Piper's line? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him that's the truth. We honor God when he is our deepest satisfaction. And when we know the love of God and are satisfied in him, uh, we're able to let go of some of the earthly things that we might desire. We don't hold on to them quite so tightly. The satisfaction we have in him enables us to even live without the love of others. Uh, In Genesis 29, 31 through 35, we see Leah, the hated wife, yearning for jacob's love she wants what many people want and that's the love of a spouse and she thinks that if she just has enough kids then she'll win over her husband and so we're told when the lord saw that leah was hated he opened her womb and leah conceived and bore a son and she called his name reuben for she said because the lord has looked upon my affliction for now my husband will love me i've given him a son he'll surely love me now doesn't work She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Didn't work. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. And the impression seems to be, Now I'm going to get my husband's love. Now I'm going to get my husband's love. And she finally says, you know, I'm not going to get my husband's love, but I have God's love, and that's enough. Jacob may or may not ever love me, but I know that God loves me, and that's consolation enough even for an unhappy marriage. When you are truly satisfied in God and know his love for you, that more than compensates for the loss of many earthly good things. Indeed, that's a sign that you're trusting in the one true and living God. You're not holding too tightly even to the best and highest things that this world has to offer. You're holding them loosely because your heart is at rest and at peace in God. The fundamental invitation of this passage is to recognize that the Lord is God. Every other God will finally fail you, but he will not. Trust in him and delight in him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to discover what Leah discovered, and that is that your Love for us is better than even romantic love or the love of a spouse. Lord, our hearts are so often restless, seeking spiritual satisfaction in things that can't provide it. Gracious Father, I teach our hearts to drink deeply uh, from fellowship with you and to be satisfied in you. Father, if we are clinging to idols who can't answer our prayers, grant us to repent and grant us to worship you as the center of our existence. Amen.